So I was reading a report from the American Psychological Association about the biggest stressors in America. So this is a survey that went out to 3,400 American adults asking them what the biggest sources of stress are in their lives. Uh, and they are in order, number one, the future of our nation, number two, money, number three, their work, and number four, the current political climate. In this survey, 60% of the respondents said that this is the lowest point in American history. 72% said that they believe media is blowing things out of proportion. None of this comes as a surprise to us, right? What may be surprising, though, is that this report is from four years ago. Not 2020, but 2017. Now, we would add to that list of stressors now, uh, we would add forced isolation, the constant fear of sickness and death. We would add maybe crippling loneliness to that list. And, and what we've learned is that, yes, we've crossed this invisible line in history with this coronavirus, but all of those stresses already existed in some way. But what this season of life is doing to us is it exposing the fault lines in our souls. And that leads us into, by default, this crippling culture of anxiety that we're seeing bubble up and kind of fester in our homes and in our relationships. Like some of us, when we experience anxiety, we go into panic mode. So that's me. I'm a panicker where I, I read more news, I get m like more preoccupied, I, I plan more. Like if, if you're a panicker like me, you've been thinking more about money uh, now in the last two weeks than you've probably been thinking about it for the last two months or maybe the last two years. But I'm married to someone who reacts to anxiety in a very different way. Uh, I'm married to a, a procrastinator. <laughs> and maybe you are too, or maybe you are one. A procrastinator, instead of talking more, they talk less. Instead of engaging more, they pull the covers over their heads and they try to hide until it all blows over. And what this creates in our relationships is friction, misunderstanding, resentment, uh, missed expectations, right? So a lot of us are, are working from home if we're blessed enough to have a job right now. And if you're anything like my wife, she's been going, okay, Ryan's working from home. There's more flexibility, right? And what she's finding is that, wow, Ryan's working from home, but he's still somehow late, <laughs> late to dinner, late to whatever. And maybe in your home or in your relationships at work or in your family, maybe it's kind of eggshelly right now, right? Or you're feeling kind of micromanaged or, or uh, undervalued. And everything you say can and will be used against you. And what that creates is more distancing, more isolation, more disconnect and loneliness. And you might be finding yourself questioning the motives of people that you used to trust a few weeks ago. If you're married, intimacy drops in working relationships, misunderstanding skyrockets. If you were lonely already, that loneliness is amplified more and more. Outward crisis creates inward conflict. Outward turmoil creates inward tension. Uh, this is corny, but I'll just say it. A lot of us right now, we're all stressed up with nowhere to go. And we can choose to give into this culture of anxiety 
or we can create a culture of peace. And that is what the Holy Spirit has always been up to in the church and in our relationships. If you're a believer in Christ, what God wants to do with you right now, as he's always wanted to do, is use you to create a culture of peace in your home and in your relationships. And this is exactly what Paul is addressing in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. So, if you're just catching up with us, my name's Ryan. I'm on the teaching team here. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with us. If you've been a part of the Door Creek community these last couple months, you may know that we were in a series going through Paul's letter to the Philippian church in the New Testament and just gleaning all sorts of powerful uh, truth about the gospel, the power of the gospel, and and how God calls us to love one another and partner to, to make his family bigger. Now, when the, all the news came down about the coronavirus, we kind of threw that series out the window and, and said, we need to react to what's happening right now. But in God's wisdom, and I believe he spoke to Mark Myfair, our senior pastor, and really led him to say, guys, there's actually a lot more in here to mine uh, and to, to dig into. So we're going to get back into our series in Philippians and finish out chapter 4. Here's what Paul writes to the church in Philippi. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Notice Paul's heart and his affection for this church. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche. These are two women who were leaders in this kind of fledgling house church community in Philippi. I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind, speaking to the mindset of Christ that doesn't fight for his rights, but actually gives them up for the sake of others in compassion and love to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, we don't know exactly who that is, probably some church leader, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. So who is Paul talking to here? He's talking to this fledgling network of these little house church communities. And the way church worked, there were no church buildings then. Uh, meeting, like gathering publicly uh, under the banner of Christ was totally illegal because in Philippi, like much of the Roman world, it was expected that you would worship the emperor, who at this time was the emperor Augustus, who, by the way, had turned Philippi, the city, into uh, a retirement community for, um, for ex-military personnel. Kind of a crazy story. So Philippi was like this hyper-nationalistic, uh, like kind of a mini Rome. There was Latin inscriptions on all the doorposts and, and everyone in Philippi was granted Roman citizenship, was a, which was a huge, huge deal. But this Christian community that was somewhere, somewhere like 50 to 100 people meeting in house churches was very, very different. Paul earlier had called them citizens of heaven. And, and so his instruction to them was how to bring heaven into this very uh, politicized culture uh, in, in Philippi where the emperor, it was expected, would be worshipped. Now, what Paul is saying 
is don't worship the emperor. Uh, instead, be of the same mind with Christ. So they're meeting in these house churches. And the way it would work is you would go into a home with your neighbors and coworkers, kind of whoever was connected to that little network, maybe 10 to 20 people. And you would sit around the table uh, and there would be a reading of scripture. Uh, there would be some prayer. There would be some singing. And then there, it would kind of culminate in this celebration of the Lord's Supper, which wasn't like a thimble of juice and a little paper wafer, if you're like a part of church world today. It was, it was a meal. It was a joyous celebratory dinner. But with Eodia and Syntyche, these two kind of leaders, most likely they were hosts in house churches, there was like tension. There was tension. So if you and I went to Syntyche's house, we would sit down and we would know that just down the road, uh, Yodia's um, people were sitting at her house and we would listen to Syntyche and kind of hear these well slightly like backhanded compliments or like passive aggressive kind of remarks or, or like baptized gossip you know like you know I'm Syntyche might say something like I'm not mad at Yodia I'm just confused by her you know Maybe you've heard that before or like you know Syntyche she really does well for someone who doesn't speak Latin Things like that. And what Paul is doing, he's, he's acknowledging that this uncomfortable standoff is actually dividing the church community. It wasn't like necessarily a moral issue or a theological issue that he would have to weigh in on. But it's something where uh, the church was choosing sides and it was bringing this division. You could cut the tension with a knife. And so Paul pleads for them to be of the same mind, to stop doing things out of selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility to value each other above themselves. And so he gives us, well, he gives them and us four practices for creating a culture of peace that is especially applicable to us when we're in this season of crisis. So four practices. Number one, choose your joy. Number two, amplify your gentleness. Number three, trade your fears. And number four, remember the best. Choose your joy, amplify your gentleness, trade your fears, remember the best. Let's start with choose your joy. So if you, if you don't have a Bible, just pause this video and go and grab one because we're going to look at the words. And remember, if you are a note taker, uh, you're welcome to do that. You can also uh, grab the online bulletin at doorcreek.info and you can take notes there as well. So verse four, choose your joy. Here's what Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. So whenever a biblical author repeats something, uh, you know, he says it multiple times, it means we need to tune in and pay attention. Choose your joy. This first thing that Paul says, I would say is actually foundational to the rest. And it actually is the thing that makes our Christian faith fundamentally different than any other approach to dealing with anxiety, whether it's relational or otherwise. So a lot of us, when we hear 
rejoice in the Lord. If you've been in church world for a long time, you may think like what that basically means is um, to be happy that I'm a Christian or to like kind of just smile, like grin and bear it no matter what's happening. But that misses, it drastically misses uh, what Paul is getting at. Rejoice in the Lord. It's not just having joy, but it's also what you're having joy in. So the word rejoice in the Greek is this word kyrio. And kyrio was, was the word for rejoice, but it was also the word for like hail or greeting. You would, you would like see a neighbor walk by and say, hail, rejoice, kyrio. And over in Rome, uh, gladiators would hail Caesar before they would start to fight. They would say, hail Caesar, we who are about to die salute you. Now, fundamentally, there's, there's a huge difference in, in what I think our cultural idea of joy is. Because for us, joy comes from what makes me happy, right? I rejoice in what makes me happy. But in, in the Greek culture and context, you rejoice not in what makes you happy, but in what gives you hope. And so gladiators who would hail Caesar, they would be appealing to Caesar to say, hey, you alone have the power and the ability to save me right now, right? They were appealing. They were casting their hope on Caesar. What you rejoice in reveals where your hope lies, not just where you get your happiness. And this has been abundantly clear looking at our stock market the past two weeks. After days and days of uh, record-breaking dives in our stock market, on March 24th, uh, we had the eighth largest day of gain in American stock market history. And that followed the announcement of the $2 trillion coronavirus relief bill that that was signed. Boom, it shot up. What that shows us is that it is where our hope lies as Americans, our hope obviously was, is uh, lying or like based and anchored on our prosperity and our, our wealth and our security. Where does your hope lie? What do you rejoice in? Earlier in Philippians uh, chapter 3, Paul says rejoicing will be a safeguard to you. In other words, rejoicing anchors our souls in something. And as long as our souls are being anchored on things that are volatile, like our prosperity or our health or our family situations or whatever circumstances we choose to base them on, we will not know true joy. But... If Jesus truly is the Son of God who died for our sins, offering us forgiveness, and then resurrected, defeating our worst enemies forever, if that is true, then it is only by putting our joy on him that we will know true joy. So Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. So we have to choose our joy. And here's how you know where your joy lies. And if you are taking notes, you can write this down. Otherwise, just treat it like a thought experiment. Uh, Fill fill the blank in this sentence. If it weren't for blank, I would be in trouble. If it weren't for my job, I would be in trouble. Or if it weren't for my health, I would be in trouble. Whatever we fill that blank with, that's where 
are, that's what we're rejoicing in. That's where our hope lies. And Paul says, put Christ in that space. That's where we start. Number two, amplify your gentleness. So when I used to, uh, when I lived in Nevada, I would go hiking in the mountains and, and we would sometimes come up to these like really, really steep inclines, basically cliffs, you know, a thousand feet high or something like that. And these things would be utterly impossible to climb without climbing gear. But what um, Parks and Rec would do is they would carve what's called switchbacks into the sides of these cliffs. And it made, it made the ascent a lot more gentle and doable. You would climb up side to side at a much uh, uh, like lower angle so you could actually get up. And that's what this is talking about. Being gentle means not, it means like yielding. It means being tolerant. It means being kind. It, it, it means um, meeting, meeting people where they are and giving them a reasonable way to arrive with you to where you are. And so what this looks like, maybe like for us um, around the dinner table, is we want to we meet each other where we are. So before uh, putting expectations on our kids, for example, we're, we'll just sit around the table and be like, how are you guys doing? You know? And what we'll find out is that there's, there's some anger, there's some fear, there's some conflict that we need to talk about and deal with. And and amplify your gentleness means start, with the people that you're relating to, start where they are, which means you have to ask and you have to listen and you have to be uh, present. And Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all. And that means, guys, this is not the time to sweep our conflicts under the rug. This is the time to shine the light of God's grace as we, uh, on our hearts as we journey through conflict and toward peace. And Paul says, the Lord is near. And guys, what this means is that God is close to us. He's ready to give us the spiritual strength and resources to do this. And that happens in the place of prayer, which is where Paul goes next. Uh, this is trade your fears. So we've read, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Here's where he talks about trading your fears. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And he says, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding so it's peace that, that doesn't make sense. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Anxiety, uh, def the definition of anxiety is a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Hello, that's exactly where we are. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, you may have heard this, do not be anxious for anything kind of advice, kind of plucked out and applied to as a blanket statement for how to deal with your anxiety and your worry. And that's, that's a good thing. But here, Paul is specifically showing us how to funnel the peace of God into the, the very tensions of our relationships. He's echoing Jesus' teaching on dealing with worry and anxiety. In Matthew 6, 27, Jesus says, which of you by being anxious will add a single hour to your life? 
what what he's saying there is stop being preoccupied with things that are out of your jurisdiction. You can't control time. You can't control the person sitting next to you. Stop being preoccupied and anxious and tense about that. Like, guys, if, if you're a Christian, you're in the Christian community, you're, you do the Christian family thing, there is so much frustration that comes from uh, trying to be the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. When we try to do what only God can do in their lives by pointing out their shortcomings or by worrying about uh, how they're going to ruin you or to get caught up in that's not fair or to be lost in being preoccupied with the what ifs. What if they abandon me? What if they don't like me? All that kind of stuff. And Paul is saying here, don't go down that road because you're not God. The good news though is that God is God and he offers us this prayer, a specific kind of prayer. It's a prayer where we unload our hearts to God. We say what we need, what we feel, but we also come alongside that and we give gratitude for God for what he's done in our lives. One commentator on this prayer says this, Many of us do not want to pray because we know that disciplined biblical prayer would force us to eliminate sin that we would rather cherish. It is very hard to pray with compassion and zeal for someone we would much prefer to resent. That's Don Carson in his book, Praying with Paul. So putting your request to God and, and putting your thanksgiving to God, what that means is as we come to God with the relational anxieties um, that we're dealing with, we're saying, God, help this person. Lord, they seem stressed out. Would you help them? They're really sad. Would you help them? They seem really frustrated and wound up. God, would you help them? But then we also say, Lord, thank you for the grace that you've shown me. Thank you for the ways you've forgiven me. You see the power in that? And Paul says that uh, the peace of God, that actually ushers in the peace of God. Think of it like a bridge. That, that type of prayer is a bridge that gives, brings us across the chasm of our anxiety into the very shalom, the peace of God. So that's, that's uh, trade your fears. And now we move to remember the best. Remember the best. So let's jump into verse eight. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received from me or seen in me, put into practice, okay? So there's all these like virtues that that Paul lists. And what he's doing is he's giving us a grid, a a lens through which we are to see the people that we're relating to. Whatever is, he says, uh, true, (laughs) whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure. If you um, you ever put on 3D glasses, You've got a, a blue lens and a red lens. And what it does is it filters the kind of light that goes into your eyes and into your brain. And it causes us to see things that pop out in 3D. 
about what we're seeing. And that's what Paul is saying. Put on the right lenses so you can see people the right way. You can see people through, um, through the eyes of God and, and you see the, what, what he's doing and what he's up to in their lives. And guys, when we see what is actually true about the person that we're struggling with, not just what I want to be true about them, but what is actually true about them, that they are made in God's image, that they're loved by God, that Jesus died and sacrificed himself for them, that he's uh, invested his very life into them, that the value statement on their lives is not what they uh, provide for me, but what, what God has given to save them, that changes everything. And this is the most powerful key you will ever have uh, in dealing with any relationship. Uh, Sam Crabtree wrote a book called uh, Practicing Affirmation. And here's what he says, quote, God is glorified in us when we affirm the work he has done and is doing in others. And then he compares uh, affirmation, the practice of speaking out what is true and what is good in other people. He compares it to a key. And when you have a key to a car, uh, the key is not the most important part of the car, right? The car has a uh, you know, drivetrain and, and wheels and a steering wheel and, and a dashboard and all of these things that are probably more important in terms of, of its functionality. But a lot of us are stuck in our relationships because we have not uh, inserted the key of affirmation and started that relationship up. Guys, when we begin to speak affirmation to our kids, to our spouses, to our bosses that we struggle with, to our coworkers that we have to interact with through a screen right now, to our neighbors who are nowhere to be seen, all of that, when we start to do that, uh, we see just a transformation take place in those relationships. The last thing that Paul says is that when we do these things, the four practices of creating a culture of peace, that the God of peace will be with you. Now notice, it doesn't just say the peace of God. It says the God of peace. Doing these things are actually ushering in the very presence of God. Do you want your home to be a place where God is welcome? Do you want your workplace right now, even if it's digital, to be a place where God is present and powerful and, and bringing his healing and his peace? Then do these things. That's what Paul is saying. Peace. Shalom. I want to close with this quote from uh, Cornelius Plantinga, who's an American philosopher in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, listen to what he says about peace. Quote, it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Friends, if we want our relationships right now in this time of high anxiety to be the way they ought to be, we can't do that without the presence of God. And so let's, let's practice these four practices that Paul gives us. Understanding that outer crisis 
is creating inner conflict. And it's festering, even if you haven't noticed yet. That we can choose to give into a culture of anxiety or partner with the Holy Spirit to create a culture of peace by choosing joy, by amplifying our gentleness, by trading our fears, and by remembering the best. Let's pray. Lord, we, we invite you into our living rooms, into our dining rooms, into our vehicles, into our virtual spaces, wherever we are. We're still your church, even though we're not together in a special building. God, wherever we are, we invite you to bring in your peace. Lord, there is anxiety right now. There is anger. There is some bitterness and some resentment. Uh, There are misunderstandings. There's all this stuff out there. God, we ask that you would heal that, that you would give us the ability to power through that by the presence of your spirit. And Lord, as we join together to share in the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would work powerfully in us. Would you bless my friends wherever they are? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.